today we are talking about your thesis. What exactly got you guys into the area of robotics and artificial intelligence? Clark, why don't you go ahead? And and I know who you're going. It's going to all come back to one certain philosopher. But uh, yes, <laughs> um, the, the the simplest way to to say it is. Um, Pete and I are both members of, of the same PhD class, uh, and and in the course of that coursework, the um, it's a it's a PhD in humanities with the thematic uh, element of, of what does it mean to be uh, human uh, in an age of technology. Well, being a being a PhD, of course, we have to to spend some time studying the the building of philosophy of technology. Uh, and in the course of, of those studies, this question of, of robotics uh, and, and the related topics of transhumanism and posthumanism kept occurring. And so among our class discussions, uh, we, we seem to keep returning to this topic. Um, and, and so the, the more we delved into it, the more we realized that, that, that both there was the, the academic aspect of it and then, of course, that... These are going to be questions that, that simply are, are inseparable from, from, from modern society and our modern civilization. Uh, and so we, it sort of has gone, gone from there. Yeah. And so, um, Adam, the, uh, the program is at Salve Regina University in Newport, Rhode Island. And uh, Clark's absolutely right. Uh, since the inception of the program in the early to mid-90s, we can see how technology fiction has now become technology fact. And I'll give an example of the fiction is uh, the film Gattaca, where parents are able to choose genetically what characteristics their children offspring may have uh, down to the sex now and also screen for diseases and whatnot. So if you've been following the, the technology of genetics, you can see that the CRISPR technology allows an element of just that, deciding um, what kind of uh, genetic profile a person can have and and now we're just at the beginning stages of that uh, and if the technology continues on its uh, exponential trajectory you can imagine that what we see now is going to look at in the neolithic age uh, decades from now uh, and that's across the realm of all the technology it doesn't stop and so we asked ourselves i mean the theory of what does it mean to be a human in the age of technology? Um, do we lose any of our humanity? Does technology take away from us as as uh, sentient beings, as emotional beings? And what will the technology do to us once it realizes its full potential? And that goes back to the main theme of Martin Heidegger, um, early 20th century, uh, when he talks about what are the hidden aspects of technology? And we really don't know, according to him, what technology holds for us until it's in place and it reveals itself. Um, Clark, do you have anything to add to that? No, uh, that you that was very well said. That 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 Heidegger, uh, for all his his other many flaws or challenges, uh, really spent the whole uh, final third of his of his academic career uh, looking at these very questions. Uh, and and one of the the key takeaways that he leaves is is posing the question of of in in, in is a given technology good or bad uh, can only be understood in terms of um, what does it then do to um, 
to, to humanity uh, and to those who employ it, that, that a technology becomes, uh, crosses the line between good and, and, and not good, uh, when it reduces humanity, uh, to, to merely an economic consideration, uh, if it commodifies, if it, if it causes people to be seen only in terms of, uh, being an economic resource, um, yeah, and, and, exactly. and, and so that, so consequently, as, as, as Pete was saying, you know, in our discussions, what, what we, the, what the, our classmates and I, you know, came to realize is, is that, you know, this is, these are just, the, the, one cannot look at any given example of technology, a particular artifact, and say, oh, it's good or it's bad in and of itself. It can't be removed from the context of what does it do to the, the popular, to the community that's using it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think really had a concern in the in the mid twenties and thirties when he saw people leaving uh, the bucolic area of the Schwarzwald or uh, or Bavaria and heading into Berlin or uh, any other urban sector in Germany and going into the manufacturing fields and being automatized, you might say, sort of uh, the um, Fritz Long's version of uh, Metropolis, where we're just cogs in a machine working for some grandmaster slaving away each day. And uh, that, that he saw, and we can still see how that sort of uh, lifestyle choice, uh, if by choice or by, uh, by sheer need to make money, uh, it's taken us away from uh, his version of a, of a Heimat, a, a homeland where we're all gathered around the hearth and in family time, um, and there's everyone's pitching in to help out with the family's um, income or lifestyle or uh, or production of whatever they may be doing to to survive and make money. Uh, and he was not far off if you look in terms of where we've gone in, in the lifestyle of the West. Um, we are in suburbia. We have one, two, three-hour commutes to our do you feel the same way, um, Clark? It, it, it exactly. Um, it's interesting when one when one looks at at how Heidegger. You can see the evolution of his thought. Um, he did a series of lectures um, in in 1944, um, where he 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 took uh, an earlier German philosopher Friedrich Holderlin, and who had written this this lovely romantic uh, uh, poem. Uh, praising the, the 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 Danube River, uh, and he, he referred to it by its classical name, the Ister, mm. and and so this poem, the hymn to of the Ister, and and embedded within it were a number of ideas that that Heidegger extracted and shared with his students that that the the very land um, had character, that 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 the the essence of the river. Uh, imparted to those who, who, who lived by it, through it, on it, um, that, it, that it became part of their, of, of their personhood, as it were. And, and, and from that, Heidegger began asking, well, um, what do we do when we then industrialize that river? Uh, when, when the Danube, uh, becomes dammed for hydroelectric power, for doing it to the river, um, what does that do to, to the people from whom, who were part of that? Uh, that, that their personhood is made up, uh, in the character of that river. Uh, it was, it was very interesting to me 
uh, this past year, I actually had an opportunity to, to sail on the Danube, and I was fascinated going through the various uh, dams and locks moving upriver. Uh, I kept coming back to this question of, of, is the river that I'm seeing and enjoying sailing upon, uh, can it be thought of as the same river that, that, that Martin Heidegger or, or Friedrich Holderlin or, or whomever, the, you know, the, the ancient people who lived in those lands, uh, am I seeing the same river? Uh, because it clearly has been modified, it's been changed. It's something different now. Yeah, and and, and you're and, and you're also and in that a nice question. Boat. That, that's very true. That's very true. So so these are these are the they they give us an, an opportunity to sort of introduce this question of, you know, clearly the technology changes us. Does it merely change us physically, or does it change? The, the, the underlying fundamental nature of, of, of either who we are as individuals or who we are as people. Does it change the nature of our relationship within our own communities? Or, or and, and this is where I'm going to bring in um, Hannah Arendt, does, does the technology have a, this, with the technology, is there a tendency or a capability of enslaving a population due to the reach the breadth and the depth that the technology has uh, that that the users are not aware of until they are part of that um, all-encompassing entity or body to which they've given up some of their sovereignty in exchange for either pleasure or security uh, and and you see that in in her social con uh, human condition uh, are we having an act is it an active life or a I'll say it an enslaved life uh, and and so this is, I think, what Adam brought us in. He wants to look at also um, what does it mean to be a citizen in the digital age? Uh, we're not only workers; we're we're citizens. We're participating in democracy, and we have some say in our in our future um, because of the Rousseauian social contract uh, or the the Hobbesian agreement. Also, we've made with the Leviathan in this terms uh, of our elected leaders in government and style of government. Sure. So. Are we going to give up some part of our humanity or our decision-making ability or our um, other resources that we have, like time, thought, power, how we raise our kids, et cetera, to the, to the um, governmental entity that uh, will be able to exploit or, a softer word, utilize uh, technology that is very, others would say, Historically intrusive. That comes back to the to you. You framed it very well, Pete. It comes back to to the question is as, as Heidegger saw it is if 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 a if a society a, a given government organization is able to utilize technology any given technology in such a way as to essentially reduce the participants to nothing more than 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 economic considerations. Hmm. Uh, then, then that technology is is dehumanizing, and and that was the means by which he he felt the distinction was reached, and and I think you know we need to recognize that that as Heidegger was was forming these ideas very clearly, he was seeing as Germany was losing the war, 
and 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 the extent of its of its behavior, uh, it, it's the the industrialization of death that that Nazi Germany was just defined by. Uh, I can't help but believe that that he was having this visceral reaction to to seeing uh, and and having inadvertently been a part of it. <laughs> he, um, he was co-opted as well. Isn't he? he was, and 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 that's voluntarily. Yeah, that's 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 been one of the big controversies about Heidegger, and I, I wouldn't want the discussion to go in into into that direction because that's a, a whole other fertile field of of, of debate. Um, but I but I think it it it, it you you you've neatly summarized that there's both the the nature of citizenship within a technological community between the between the state as a collective representation of the community and the individuals. And then there is the whole other aspect of what does the new and emerging technologies that, particularly with the prospect of, of the birth of, of, of true AI um, and, and not just artificial intelligence, but artificial personhood. Right, right. And it's, um, not, and it's, not, it's not the uh, so much the birth as the husbanding. Um, of that of those AI technologies, which already exist as we know, and that's that's how any of our algorithms work already. I, I will I will say that we because we're humanities majors, we always bring it back to art somehow. And um, I do want to mention that 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 the trend historically in the art field of film has shown over and over again the it's encapsulated the fear that. Uh, Thinkers like Elon Musk and uh, and Stephen Hawking have said that, uh, and uh, Nick Bostrom. Once you have created the AI and it's out of its box, it's going to want to better itself and then free itself. And and how many times have we seen that in a film? And I'll mention three of them. As one you particularly like is Her, um, where the the AI grows beyond its first relationship and and winds up having thousands of relationships with other people beyond uh, its initial user. Um, and uh, the movie just recently, Ex Machina, what the, what happens when the AI androids uh, are uh, imprisoned, eventually their goal is to free themselves and get out in the big bad world. Uh, it's the same thing in the movie, um, a little-known independent film called uh, Automata, not so independent, but uh, with Antonio Banderas in the film, the AI's machines are created, robots are created, but somehow someone takes one of the governors off of the AI, and it's able to, at that point, think for itself. And when it thinks for itself, the first thing it does is make others like it that can think for themselves, and then starts a a very quickly moving trend where the robots are now freeing themselves and going on their own and doing whatever it is they want to do uh, that they've decided for themselves. So there's a lot of self-volition, self-organization uh, that happens. And and I think it's, it mirrors the human condition of what would we want to do if we were enslaved? We would want to be free. If we if we know that there is a capability in existence beyond our slavery to be free, we would go to that freedom, of course. And the AIs... A, a near sentient being is going to see humans making their own decisions and wonder, why can't I make my own decisions? At this point, we should probably think about if the AI is making a decision, is it become, as we talked about previously, Clark, a member of society? Is there a, a citizenship light we can bestow upon near sentient beings? 
are members of the, of the citizenry. Um, and you also have to be able to seek out and follow the rules of good virtue because his goal was to have a virtuous city and everyone in the city is as virtuous as possible and there's virtue is unlimited in that city. Um, can we bestow some sort of citizenship or ownership in the society to an entity that that knows right from wrong and knows what good virtue is because those are the those are the entry requirements right okay. now you you've touched on two really interesting points and I love both examples that you gave uh, we've just we've discussed the movie her at, at, at length uh, ex machina we haven't had as much time but but you've touched on it and 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 having brought it up uh, I, I'd like to 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 to, to bring a few points out from that. What's fascinating about uh, Ex Machina uh, is that the, 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 the consciousness test uh, that, the, that the, the maker, the, 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 the cyber industrialist, the, the young genius sets for his creation. Um, the maniacal is, Steve Jobs character. Yes, the maniacal Steve Jobs character um, is, is that uh, the proof of consciousness uh, is the ability uh, and the de the choice to deceive uh, that deception becomes the key and and the 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 the, the android in freeing herself uh, exceeds not just deception but then uh, takes upon the the you know she she sees as being necessary to kill uh, uh, and 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 not just kill you know to kill. Um, to to kill the 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 young uh, you know the, the the young man who's the, the the object of her of her deception to kill her employer or not her employer her maker uh, which you know you in the end you really you really at least when I watched the movie I, I didn't find a great deal of sympathy uh, for him dying at the hands of his creation you know, the, the 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 makers of the movie the writer the director the 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 producer I think did a wonderful job of of of, of, of essentially showing this this ambiguity, but there we see her. The last vision we have of her, the last picture in the movie, is the bright sunshine and 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 the look of wonder on her face, and she, she's surrounded by a crowd of people. Now, incorporated Aristotle, into that society, she has now yeah. become, uh, for all intents and purposes, a member of that society, at least by her looks. Yes. Now, Aristotle would say that given that set of circumstances, regardless of, of whatever punishment that she might receive for having committed murder, I mean, immediately we have the question of, congratulations, welcome to civilization, welcome to society, now you're indicted for murder because in achieving it, you had to kill. There, there's, a, there's a wonderful question that emerges with regards to the question of knowing Good and evil. We we almost come back to to an Eve emerging from the garden, uh, having been clothed, and now having fallen. You know, I didn't I didn't see that in the movie, but that is a very good analogy. What I sort of took away with Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Um, yes. Which, which we know at length, yes. uh, at great length, and Frankenstein created the uh, the monster, uh, the creature, who then. Um, gets out of control and gets away from him and winds up killing um, to sustain itself uh, from threats and goes out in the rest of society at the end. It escapes. Yes. Now, now Aristotle would say that, 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 the, that the android in, in Ex Machina 
has all of the means and capabilities to participate in citizenship. She has the means to contribute, and she has the capability to to uh, participate in decision making, which were the two aspects that Aristotle identifies as defining full citizenship. Now, let's compare that though with Samantha in her. If, the, if she can is, be, if you can be virtuous in the society, then you can be part of the society. And if we can program that into an AI entity body, then yes, uh, that would that would be a no-brainer, right? You could program the AI. Yeah, she, yeah, she clearly. Virtuous. Yeah, she clearly has the capability. She may choose not to, but even more so, she's physically capable of 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 participating both physically. In other words, she has a contribution that she could make physically, um, and. So she can she can she can directly part she can directly contribute to the physical commonweal as well as have shown the capability of participating in shared decision making. And so I would ask the question that then compare that to a character, you know, a a, a character like uh, Samantha, who who really is. I mean, let's think of Samantha as being uh, Apple's Siri on steroids. Um, you know, she she's she's this lovely voice. She she's a disembodied presence. But over the course of the movie, we we come to see her as is just just as as the the lead character played by um, uh, Joaquin Phoenix um, comes to to you know he falls in love with her. Um, they 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 carry on an intimate relationship. Uh, boy meets girl. Boy and girl fall in love. Girl. You know, falls out of love and leaves him. In the end of the movie, there he is, you know, jilted yet again, yes. um, sort of. By two quote women. Quote. Yes, he's he's been he's been repeatedly, you know, his his marriage fell apart because he he couldn't he 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 wouldn't accept risk and intimacy and his and and Samantha leaves him because she's outgrown him. Um, of course, there's the fascinating question of his his friend and he and his friend are discussing and this happened. Played by Amy, um, I forget her last name. Her character was actually named Amy, uh, but but there they're sitting on the on the roof of the building, and you get the sense almost that that she's she's questioning him and saying, "Or you you know, here you know, sort of here am I, you know, are, are if you're prepared for intimacy, I'm here and I'm living and I'm breathing." Whether he whether he picks up on that this is left kind of as an open question at the end of the movie. Um, and the movie is basically optimistic. One of the things that I that I that I found fascinating about uh, the movie Her was that it's set in a in a in a near future Los Angeles, very recognizably, uh, not very far different from our world, but for whom the question of personhood for a sentient operating system has already been answered in the affirmative. There's there is never anyone who questions whether or not. Um, this is this is um, they're, acceptable, they're, right. acceptable or not. It's it's yeah. just whether or not it's appropriate for him. Isn't that, isn't that interesting? It's it's not that a Supreme Court decision was made, but a, a collective agreement that yes, this this style and this entity is is acceptable in our society, and uh, and we talked about robotics and and robots and uh, and their their oncoming capabilities, which are which are going to surpass our as long as they get past the uncanny valley, I suppose of their of their physical makeup will be fine uh, in accepting them. 
uh, until the point where I think that well, let's go back one second. I, I'm wondering if governments are going to prefer to have a citizenry that is made up of non-human sentient AI machines who can do that which the government would prefer, which is be virtuous, be good citizens, make money, don't just and and the the positive aspects of being a and vote on time and all and pay your taxes, versus the the negative aspects you get with the the mixed up uh, mindset and influences and nature versus nurture and all the rest that makes us humans human, uh, okay. the unpredictability now, that... and the complexity. So when you think a, a government is going to prefer to have one type over another because one is more productive economically. It's it's not instead of Homo economicus we get Robotus economicus uh, because of the fact that the government prefers that it's easier and cheaper and less costly to maintain security and safety of a of a, of a robotics population versus a human population. Okay, perhaps, but but there I would come back to Heidegger and just immediately point out. There you have taken you've taken the step of that if government is going to apply universally apply these technologies to achieve that end, then all humanity has been reduced to nothing more than commodity. It's and who's making the decision of what value who who puts the value, the dollar or yen or bitcoin value to that commodity on whatever open market will pay for it. Very interesting. But, I just saw yeah, a, a note and, from... And before, hold on, because because I think even more importantly than just the question of, 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 of Heideggerian standing reserve, and that is, let's take it, let's take step back, and what if it's not the government that's making the decision about what is desirable in citizenship, and therefore manufacturing it in the form of, of, of preferred technologies. But let's think of that company in her. I believe the name of the company that manufactured the operating system was Omega. Okay. Now let's say the Omega company wants the U.S. government to pass um, legislation that, 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 that improves their um, economic uh, situation. They they want to open up new markets, and in order to do so, they need sanctions against a foreign government lifted. In order to get that, if 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 a character, if a person like Samantha as an operating system, as a sentient being, is afforded the franchise, is now a citizen and allowed to vote simply because of her personhood, what is to say that the Omega Corporation doesn't manufacture the necessary votes in the form of other sentient operating systems that they bring online, turn on, switch on, let them start growing, and they become sentient beings who then are allowed to vote. And you could do this virtually in every single constituency in, in the United States and ensure that you get enough people elected within a two-year cycle to pass the legislation that you want. Very curious. I, I think it was – was it Thomas Jefferson who, who – in oh. It, well, in the Federalist Papers, there was a discussion about how big the voting blocks should be, and I, I'm not a, a federal, not a constitutional expert, but it was it was yeah, you're right. Vote, it was in the Federalist, so would have you know Madison Jay and and and, and Hamilton Madison. having the discussion. How and big that the voting was, that was specific. Yeah. yeah, 
could it be so big that it, it gets unwieldy and, and different regions have different and we call them regions, but they could be fact they could be factions, right? You have the, the economic faction and you have the uh, the labor faction and we have the the sentient robot uh, um, a a um, voting block, and they have their own K Street lobbyists who who are going to make money off of them as well. I, I could see your scenario being really deleterious, of course, and in skewing any election of of any size. And it comes to a matter of who is granted citizenship. We're having that discussion right now in the U.S. Is there are people who are anybody who's actually a born in the soil of the United States considered a citizen. Um, which had, you know, until 1850s when we actually started to look at it, or 1870s, 1890s, look at immigration itself in the United States. Before then, that, that was not an issue. You you show up, you're a, you get the your citizenship. And where is citizenship? So what yeah. is what makes what is going to make a citizen in the digital age? And and if we have if we have a a bifurcated society of citizenry, uh, robotics and and humans, uh, humanoids and humans. Um, are we going to further make it a strata distinction in our society? We already have it now with with the one percenters, the ten percenters, the upper middle class, middle class, and and on down the line, uh, creating that bell curve. Where are the robotics populations going to fit in that bell curve? I wonder. At this at this time, you know, given today, um, the the. Samantha, the question posed by Samantha remains uh, purely academic. You know, it's strictly a thought exercise, but but it's not far off to see it coming. Current in the in the last um, two decades, there has been really in the last 15 years, there has been um, several cases that have made it into. Um, um, you know, state level courts. It hasn't risen up to federal law yet, but but for whom um, civil case law, where where plaintiffs have sought relief uh, within the context of uh, the online of uh, virtual gaming world, where where they have they have purchased a, a subscription, uh, they participate uh, in virtual reality, they create a persona for themselves, they become a, an alternate individual. Representing them in the in the in in cyberspace, uh, who then that individual feels that their rights have been um, violated, uh, violated, and they and and they seek redress in the physical court system, and the, and the courts have thus far, you know, it's been it's been very specific to to that context, but but it's interesting to me that the courts have already begun to recognize that that alternate. Personality that that alternate individual, um, at least insofar as it represents an actual physical person, that that all act that that alternate individual does in fact have some legal standing under certain circumstances. And, and yeah, that's really once you carry important. that forward, then what what the line will be crossed, Pete, when it no longer requires a physical presence. In and, other words. When the day yes. comes when it right. doesn't have an a physical person and it exists entirely within cyberspace, so Chris then we'll know we've crossed the line. Exactly. And Kurzweil is going to say, you know, I, say, I just saw a note yesterday or the day before. He says, yeah, he was asked a question in a forum. Uh, what are all these people going to do once all these robots are taking over all their manual labor for them? And his answer was, his answer was purely Aristotelian. It was, 
they can do those higher level actualization things and create art and and philosophize, right? Because Aristotle said you've got to do three things in life: uh, work, um, uh, rest, and study philosophy. So you can do the latter two when your when your online avatar does all your accounting for you, uh, or does the computer coding that you're supposed to be doing, which you learned in school, and now is being done by a robot that you just talk to once in a while. I, I, here's, and that, and here's the other point I want to make is that, that you said about owning property in, in say, in the in the um, second life environment, in the online world, and even online gaming world. That owning property goes directly back to John Locke. And he said, to be a citizen, you have, uh, owning a property and keeping your property and you, that ownership of property is inviolate, and the government can't arbitrarily take your property from you. I, I, so I see that when the property rights are extended into the into the cyber arena, whether it's the singularity where mines are uploaded and they and they trade Bitcoin amongst themselves or whatever currency they have, that that ownership right of property is going to justify um, an entity as a citizen or be part of that, which justifies a citizen his rights or her rights or its rights see and that that very question is embedded when we look back on 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 a on a on a character such as samantha is does samantha do labor earn wages or salary on her own you know on her own behalf and if so how can that possibly be defined in cyberspace because in the physical reality, in the physical world that people live in outside of the conceptual world of cyberspace, the, the, the fact of the matter is virtually all the exchange of wage and, and salary still comes back to some, some measurable quantity. I may sit at a desk for, and, and move electrons around on a screen, and, and most of the meaning happens between the six inches of my ears. But the fact of the matter is, is it's still a measurable physical activity. I worked at this desk for eight hours. I dug 25 feet of trench with my, with my backhoe. I, I sank 42 post holes. I, I swept 150 yards of, of pavement. Um, I, I replaced 25 canooter valves. In, in 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 this machine it's measurable and and in some form of physical activity Hannah Arendt referred to it Aristotle referred to it it it, it comes back to that that and perhaps it's because they couldn't conceive of something beyond that because it just was was too abstract but but the the, the challenge of the of of what what happens when that when that consciousness is only defined and bound as within the the cyber realm. How in the world does it define that ability to do work or the ability to contribute outside of the cyber realm? This was the question coming back to you with Aristotle with regards to Samantha, is how can she participate as a citizenship when in fact there, she lacks the means to independently contribute to the the economic well-being, the physical well-being of the community that she participates in. I would say that, uh, as explained to us by one of our classmates, remember in his discussion about the second life, people are making money in those online arenas, and and that money it can be used to buy, as you mentioned, physical things in the physical world, and some of those. 
some of those online income producing activities are on autopilot and they happen in the background, just sort of passively making money for who's ever created them. Um, and that money does have, if the money has a real use somewhere, and then yes, it, it, it needs to be taxed, first of all, for the government. Uh, government doesn't want to get uh, people to make money without being taxed, because there's value in that for, for the government, uh, for what it does. But what I also wonder is, we've talked about the robots being part of society, making money. We haven't talked about what it is when, as, as we know with human nature, men um, and women will rebel against that which you think is uh, tyranny. And I, I think of Henry David Thoreau, and, and he says, well, I, the, the best government is the government that governs least. I can see where a, a body of sentient robots, if they're in a solo community or if they're somehow connected to each other and scattered about the population, uh, eventually they'll think that the, what they're doing, sort of like the libertarian aspect of it, if, it doesn't, if I don't do it directly, I don't see why I should have to pay for it. Uh, and the robot is going to think that same kind of mindset. If robots are going to have a political party, anything is going to look like a libertarian party on steroids because it's, it's something that's efficient. It's all about me. That's, that's per perhaps. Uh, but let me, let me propose an alternative. Um, Stephen Kurzweil's, uh, he discusses this in Singularity, and, and, and he returns to the idea that once singularity is achieved, when the human consciousness can be uploaded into the digital realm and then accessed universally, have universal access to the full range of the Internet, and the Internet and all of the, the information, all of the other shared consciousness have access to that individual, that in fact he, he suggests that such questions of, of, of political franchise will become meaningless. They'll simply be left behind because in the, in the shared decision-making um, of, of, of the collective identity, consensus. Um, consensus will just immediately form around what, whatever best is uh, with no more conflict than what happens in an individual uh, when, they, when they look and say they're offered a, a, you know, a hot fudge sundae and says, well, I would love to eat that hot fudge Sunday because I love ice cream and hot fudge. Uh, and then they're immediately reminded, yes, but but it goes right to my waistline, and you know, it's, I'll have it's, to pay for your fetness somehow. Yeah, but, you know, it's the gazillion calories that no, I'm not enough, and so the tension that might, forms yeah, exactly. in the individual. Now, so what you described then is the tyranny of the majority that the bill has warned us about in democracies. And yes, yes, in democracies, you're going to get if if it's that fast, if, if it's sort of what the what Aristotle, Socrates would have liked in in the forum, if they get the collective consensus, if, if uh, to vote on on was he corrupting youth and was he teaching against the principles of, uh, of the city? Um, if everybody can vote at the speed of light, uh, they could put him to death very quickly, unless he's got a good argument. Uh, but what's going to matter most is the Borg. To use another science fiction example, is that the the Borg doesn't care about the individual. The Correct. Borg cares about the maintenance of the Borg. And and then we're going to unless so if if all of the robots have been programmed alike, that's fine. They'll be able to to achieve what they want to. Well, the minds that are uploaded all have coded out anything related to religion, um, uh, emotional desire, or uh, or uh, anything that that is inefficient, you might say, uh, or even free free will or free choice. If it's just about maintenance of the entities that are in life, then it's going to be a mobocracy. Yeah, and now that that comes back to it. I'm coming back to you know dead Greek guys. One of the principal criticisms of, of of a literal reading of Plato's Republic is that tend to a logical extreme.
Plato's Republic describes the perfect society that, mm-hmm. that resembles nothing so much as, as, as a well-run beehive or ant colony or a collective org. Right. And it is that exact degree of uniformity that, on the one hand, particularly in American society, we rail against. Um, we, we, we have a, a, a cultural ideal of the strong individualist. Independence, independence um, yeah. Yeah. You know, you know, Shane riding off to the horizon, you know, as, as the, the, the lone hero who, who stands against evil and then rides off uh, to nurse his psychic wounds. Um, you know, that's that's very American. It's been part of our, our culture. And, and to suggest that somehow technology is going to to relieve us of that uh, for the good of society, it, it brings us right back to, to Plato's Republic. The other aspect of it is, is even within Plato's Republic, there is still an elite that that maintains a sense of strong enough identity to be the decision makers. They have the freedom of choice. The philosopher kings, the one percent that that directs the ten percent of the of the warrior guardians that is keeping the the ninety percent or the eighty nine percent. Of, of laborers good, in line and telling them. Good God, you know what you just described? The inner party, the outer party, and the proles of it George Orwell's 1984. I was going to say, it's almost as though Orwell had, had been... Predicted it. Yeah, it's... it's I mean, who'd have thought that he actually read some Aristotle? Yeah. There it is. And that's and that's the same, you know, he was, he was taking, and that's why it's often been one of the criticisms of Plato's Republic has been, you know, all Plato did there was predict... And, and, and offer a justification for, 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 for pure communism. Uh, and, and depending on how one feels about the philosophical aspects of market, Marxism, you, you could make that argument. The question is, is and coming back to, to our top here, is if technology, if the natural arc, if Hegel's arc of history with regards to technology mm-hmm. is going to arrive there, whether we resist it or not, well, then what hope do we have? That's a good, good time to bring in Adam on the conversation. So what do you think thus far, Adam, after 45 minutes? But yes, well, we've covered a lot of territory, beginning with Heidegger, which I'm glad you began with, because one of the distinctions he makes is between technology as a means to an end and technology as a part of existence, as something that becomes our existence. And I think increasingly the technologies that we are developing fall under the latter category. These things are really shaping our lives. For instance, if you make a drill that makes mining more efficient, that will change our quality of life, but it won't necessarily make a qualitative change. Moving on to the films, I have not watched many. One of the good points that Peter makes in his essays, one of the main arguments against people who believe AI will almost certainly be friendly, is that it may perceive human beings as a threat, particularly if it becomes acquainted with our history. Hmm. Yeah. We're not the most peaceful, loving animals on the planet. If, if we are the parents to the children, they're going to learn some pretty poor lessons that way. 
Anton Sapex, um, and I'm sure I'm mispronouncing his last name, but but Rossum's Universal Robot hmm. in 1920 is I don't know that it can be. It, it certainly hasn't been surpassed. It may have been matched by a number of other works, but every time I reread it, I'm so impressed uh, by by how he was able to cut to the to the, the to the heart and the question of of you know that that, that once man becomes so dependent upon. Um, his technology, what happens when that technology becomes conscious and, of course, then looks at his maker and says, this is how we behave. You're this right. Is, this You're is right. how we act. You're right. It seems, it seems that there certainly is, if I can pinpoint one trend in the in the art world about technology, especially robots, it's the factor of rebellion from Rossum's Universal Robots, uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein, um, Automata and Ex Machina, and it probably goes well beyond that. Is, is that the sentience equals eventually rebellion, and it's because they want to be free from whatever we've tasked them with. And doesn't that take us back to to that same theme that we see in Genesis, from from men's, the, the, one of the defining aspects of humanity is rebellion against controlling authority through the desire to know good and evil, that once the knowledge is attained, there's no going back. It's going to be difficult to predict when that occurs, but there'll be indicators uh, on a trend line that they, we could probably look to in hindsight when the, in the future when we write the story, when the robots rebelled, and we'll be able to pinpoint at certain times certain aspects of uh, of technological development or when things go awry in a laboratory or in, a, in the environment that, that have told us at this step, the robots real or the sentient entities of the androids decided that, that uh, they being controlled by humans was not worth their time. And then it comes down to a question. If, if we end up with this bifurcated world, this bifurcated uh, entity where, where, AI, to whatever collective degrees, a single consciousness or as a, as a, as a multiplicity of con consciousnesses, but it exists in realm. Humans remain behind. Do we then become the Neanderthals, looking at the Cro-Magnons increasingly leaving us behind? And if so, should we care? Should, should we care about that? Did the last Neanderthal tribe really care that, that over the hill there was a bunch of Cro-Magnons? As long as they were left alone and left in peace, did Neanderthals care? So, so we we humans are creating our own version of ourselves as Morlocks for the Eloy masters who are going to rule us. But but who is which which side are we? Are we going to be the 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 brutal and and bloodthirsty and and are are we the Morlocks or are we the Eloy? I surely will tell you that we think right now we are the Eloy and the robots in the Ford factory or in the Foxconn factory. Uh, or wherever, uh, or loading uh, shifts with connexes, or whatever it is that robot might be doing, we think that that robot's under our control. Because we have the ability to, to limit its capabilities. Okay. And it's... Now, we, we, we almost have to answer a question of philosophy, you know, a, a technology philosophy question with a, with a, with a, a non-philosophical answer. And I'll just... Having having worked in in a, in a number of, of 
of logistics related um, tasks in my life, I can say the 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 simplest means of 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 preventing the the the, the coming cyborg apocalypse would be to simply cut off the access to uh, to the to the means of production, as it were. Um, you know, one one can one need not cut off the consciousness. One need only cut off the availability of of lubricant and and replacement parts. And that's I think what Bostrom predicts that he says with the nanotechnology development combined with an AI is that either we're going to get gray goo uh, as a result with the nanotechnology machines or they're going to be able to again exponentially uh, solve their own dilemmas and create solutions for their problems at a speed that we won't be able to fathom. Yes, and and that you know that was that was when we when we looked at Michael Crichton's uh, novel The Swarm. Uh, yeah, it was it was impressive how he took several different uh, seemingly unrelated emerging. There's still so much that we simply do not understand, and are and and perhaps years or not decades away from understanding uh, collect swarm intelligence, which would be necessary for gray goo and and nanotechnology to bypass the, the human piece in 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 achieving their own um, ability to pro to procreate and recreate, uh, and that remains. The, the, right now, that remains thus far the saving grace. Is thus far the the, the, the technology, insofar as it's approaching the possibility of, of, of true AI and true artificial consciousness, um, it remains our children. Uh, it, 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 it lacks as yet the means to reproduce at will. It's not like throwing a couple of teenagers together in, in, in the back of, of the family sedan and, and oops, they can figure out how to do it on their own. They haven't reached that point yet. I'm not saying that they won't reach it, and I'm not saying that they're not capable of reaching it. But I'm, I am saying that thus far that remains the one check that, that humanity can truly say it has uh, among any other potential ones from a, from a position of, of Philosophical understanding. So that's one of the points. If we look, you know, 200 years in the future, when we're looking back at where we went wrong, when when we give robotics the ability to duplicate themselves, we will have made a significant step in the wrong direction. That's what I think that certainly could be argued that way. And 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 I would also, I, I think, I owe it to, to the discussion to say, thus far, we have our conversation has been has been founded upon. The, the 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 accepted assumption that that true hard AI and artificial consciousness is is both possible and is going to occur. I believe an argument can still be made that that everything that we have seen thus far as a as as uh, what we suggest as being AI uh, still is is really qualifies as very clever mimicry, and and because we have not yet been able to define consciousness this comes back to to you you we were we were talking a few days ago and you raised the question of the movie Chappie and I thought it was a wonderful um, uh, you were you were, you just you, you touched on this very point and because inherent in that in the bottom of that story it like find consciousness ultimately in the movie they resolve it by saying sort of they do an ex machina solution oh plug you know moment, um, hit mode and a, a, a sentient vital in a their their consciousness captured um, to uh, to a data stick uh, or to the to the server and and boom you can replicate it as many times as you need. Um, they they solved the problem with an ex machina 
you know, mm-hmm. black box. Sure. But but let's assume for a minute that it still comes down to what is it that defines consciousness? We're now talking about a question that that the ancient Hebrews struggled with, the ancient Greeks struggled with. The the it seems to me that from the age of reason and the Romantic era in the 19th century forward, increasingly Western civilization's answer has been to ignore the question. We're just simply not going to, we're going to pretend that it doesn't exist, and, and, and that's how we're going to deal with it. And that's, that, that if we truly, if the answer in the 21st century is going to be that, that human consciousness is nothing more than a series of, of X's and O's, yeses and no's, ones and zeros. If it can truly be coded down to simple electric signal on off, and you do enough of them together, that's first. Get ready to every human, every possible billion to trillion human interaction that we've been able to encapsulate. If we can turn all in one zero, you can replicate a human consciousness. But are we really creating a human consciousness? Correct. Yeah. The, the Enlightenment thinker forward sort of mirrored what uh, Francis Bacon said about God. I know, that, I know God is perfect, incapable of recognizing why I know He is. I can't recognize it because I'm so limited, but I do know that he's perfect. I do know that, I do know that there's a, a thing called consciousness, but I can't figure out, A, how it works, or B, if it's repeatable and replicable and outside of a human brain. But Bacon was at least, had the, had I would say, had the intellectual honesty to acknowledge that, that, that he couldn't know and lacked the capability. My fear is that, that, that modern Western society uh, at its at its at its highest levels is losing the the or has lost the humility the humanity to admit what we can't know and therefore have the have the 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 humility to be careful pursuing. Science doesn't have that because science says, and this is not a denigration of science, but science currently says if I can't measure it, it does not exist. David Hume's empiricism, yes, yes, you're exactly right. And I admit that 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 of, of the various aspects we talked to, and we've been addressed in our studies, I keep coming back to that one. Um, that that I that I, I fear the the empiricist philosophy because taken to its logical extreme, um, it it leaves us with no basis. the The question that we started the, the this whole discussion with. Uh, when we when we introduced Heidegger as being a means of you know is technology good or bad good or evil um, how how are we going to define our terms and in what's going to be the agreed framework of analysis well if if we if we take Hume's empiricism to its logical extreme then that question becomes irrelevant who cares it doesn't matter and that frightens me it always comes back to Heidegger. I like to think that. <laughs> oh, I... <laughs> uh, in some ways, I hope. Yes, I Adam, have, have, we, have, we, have, have we missed it? Or is there, would you like us to take the discussion in a new direction? I was about to say that I would think a sufficiently intelligent machine, like the ones a friend of mine is developing, would be able to think abstractly like human, and... By default, the machine is curious, and it recognizes the many, many gaps in its knowledge base. I 
I think a purely empirical society would be terribly boring, but on the other hand, that's assuming that the vast majority of people need something more than what is right in front of them. Most manifestations of philosophy and religion are fairly vulgar. Compare, say, Greek paganism to Platonism. Compare most forms of Hinduism to Vedanta or to the mystery schools of Egypt versus what the peasants considered their religion. So there's always been a higher and a lower form of analysis and inquiry. True enough, true enough. And it's, you know, it, it's acknowledging how, I suppose, if, this were, 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 if these were easy answers, well, Aristotle would have been out of business and Plato would have stuck with, with teaching school. Um, Em, is there is there anything else that, that you'd like to ask, or are, are we perhaps at a good stopping point? This is a good stopping point for the first part of the conversation. One of the things that ties into what we've touched upon here is facial recognition software and the way that it alters people's behavior. And another topic that I would like to discuss mm -hmm. is intelligence augmentation which is something Peter Rothman, who you probably know, is a mm -hmm. proponent of. And frankly, I think mm -hmm. that's as or more dangerous than AI or AGI, because, of course, an AI system doesn't have the same drives as a human being. But a beefed-up human brain is just as selfish and deranged, but it has a much greater capacity for evil and for good. So facial recognition, you wrote an essay about that. I enjoyed it. You know, and, and, and I chose that topic not just as a, a singular point of what technology can do, but as part of a understanding, uh, because I, one of the books I, I think is the best political philosophy fiction book in, written in the 20th century is, of course, George Orwell's 1984. Uh, there are so many pieces of of his fiction that have come to reality. Uh, when he wrote it, it was happening. It's happening now. And one of the ones is the, the telescreen that is always on, is always on the wall, always listening, and always not just transmitting, but capturing as well. Um, and then if you look at how facial, rec facial recognition technology has expanded, you know, they say, as I wrote in the essay, they say this was 10 years ago. Uh, an average per person walking on an average day through downtown London is picked up on CCTVs 300 times. Um, that's a that's a lot of CCTV coverage. Uh, that is uh, that's good for a surveillance state. Uh, it's good to know who the citizens are and who are not the citizens and what do they do, who they are, where they are, what are they doing. But but where is that information going and and who is the owner of that information? As I like to tell people when, when you see a surveillance camera, you see the surveillance camera, but you don't see this image that the surveillance camera is capturing. You're only one perspective of it, of it and not the, not the back view, which always comes out after there's a, an incident or, uh, or some happening that this is the image that uh, the media will show from the CCTV capture. So you finally get to see what it, what it was looking at. So there's, there's two sides of it. A bifurcated existence behind the camera and in front of the camera. Uh, and Pete, actually, you you there, there's actually a trifurcated because in addition to we could almost think a a 
thinking applying communication theory now, there's actually a quadfurcated because you have the you have the 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 person who is having the picture taken of them. You have the person receiving the image. You have the media itself. Mm -hmm. And you have the information and all of the infrastructure that needs to go into place for meeting that third and fourth elements. And so you, you almost end up with conceptually you have, you know, you, you have half of a society somehow engaged either producing the goods, managing the, 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 the hard data, managing the soft data, storing it, reading it. You have a half of a society watching the other half. Of society at any given time. It, it, if you look back on the, the the Stasi run amok through Eastern Germany, the, the DDR, you have to ask yourself: boy, if they had this technology in place, they would have created a perfect system, and they'd have never fallen. They would have never fallen. They could be self-contained, watching each other um, ad infinitum. Um, it, it it is not just that the technology is replacing the humans, like the Cubans had their um, their communal committee for defense and security or something like that there you know everyone's ratting on each other and you have to report it the north koreans have the same thing they've got somebody watching each little community um uh to make sure everybody's following the party line again inner party outer party polls uh so the technology just supplants uh the human aspect of it and makes it faster and uh, more efficient and the, I think well, the, truth is, the truth is there also because if if a, if a monitor is watching the camera and hearing the camera and recording it and the data is being crunched, you get a more realistic, uh, accurate perspective of the person under surveillance of being watched, which is what the government wants. It wants it wants a a true picture of of who to watch and who not to watch at all times. If, if we're looking at a complete uh, a in a pure surveillance state atmosphere, it wants to know what everyone's doing and answer all the interrogatives with as much accuracy as possible. And facial recognition technology aids in that because it tells you who was where, when, and what they were doing. Now, but if we take let's 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 bring in what Adam posed the question with regards to to he has a friend who is doing um, um, uh, research that that is advancing uh, the, the the boundaries of AI in terms of of developing. Uh, the potential for consciousness and a, and, a, and a computer that truly learns, not just simply absorbs more information, but has the capability to interpret uh, and then extend and abstract from it. Now, if we take our, our scenario of the CCTV, individual on the train platform, looks up, sees the monitor, looks dead at it, now we have a message. Who owns that information? It travels by CCTV. Currently, we have someone on the receiving end, another set of eyes, looking at the data, making some notation whether this data is worth keeping or not. Now, what if the decision is we're going to save money on expenses and take that second monitor out, let him go sweep the streets because that's all he's particularly good for, and we're going to replace it with, with the artificial intelligence who now is going to monitor because we don't have to pay them. They have no other economic benefit. They exist only to monitor these electrons received through the system and make a determination whether or not this data is worth saving or not. So we go to Foucault then. If we're all in the panopticon and we're all being monitored and the monitors are being at least 
in, in one small ass and one slice of it, they're being watched by those being monitored. We we have now total control. And, and if you have total control, do you lose your what what of your freedoms have you lost if you if you've recognized and incorporated into your being that you're being controlled, you've modified your behavior. See, I would I would I would suggest that Heidegger in in his in in his in, in his concept of standing reserve, he would argue that the use of the AI and artificial consciousness that that is emerging to eliminate the job of that watcher in and of itself is 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 wrong. You're taking away a, a, a meaningful social interaction, however creepy it sounds to us describing it, be that as it may. It's still, in the current context and application of technology, is a meaningful job. If we take that away oh, like in favor of efficiency, now not only have we reduced that that worker to nothing more than an economic consideration, but we have further advanced that that we have reduced the humanity of the guy on the train platform one step further because ultimately the determination of whether his behavior is acceptable or not is now being made by a, by an artificial entity that that perhaps meets all of the eventual criteria for consciousness but it is still nonetheless only human insofar as that its original programming was was provided by a human Yes, and this reminds me of an old proverb, quis custodiet ipsos custodes. Right, exactly. Who watches the watchman? And of course, my Latin teacher would always berate me for my pronunciation, but I would say, why do I need to be able to pronounce it? It's a dead language. Because it has value just in and of itself. Yeah, the language which is not available in Google Translate will be the language of the rebels when the AI yes. takes over. Yes. So that would be Sanskrit. <laughs> or COBOL. I've only heard things about COBOL, but before we start ripping on that, yeah, this is an important consideration. Who is making these systems and who is monitoring them who is making sure they're not going overboard well i know that in the in the uk of course in the us we have since the, the fisa court um but that's for specific um governmental activities but it's the commercial is well beyond the the governmental in terms of its its breadth and depth throughout our society what we don't have is we don't sort of like our U.S.-based um, electrical grid. It's small pieces of the grid individually operating and not necessarily uh, uh, connected at all parts. It's not a uh, it's not a complete network, which is kind of like our surveillance now. We have surveillance systems on on uh, that capture license plates readers. And who is the one who who wants to own the license plate reader data the most? Are those companies that are the the repo men, and there's two or three that are big in the United States that that want to know all the data of where the last license plate was when they go to repossess the car. That's it's, it's there. Uh, Clark would always mention the the money aspect of it. 
how are we how are we going to make money? Well, we're going to make money by having these systems everywhere, and we can find out where every car has been when it moves around the uh, the community, and therefore we can find the car when it comes time to repossess it. That, so the technology has been utilized for an economic gain. Uh, I I suppose also if if you walk down the street and it's a hot day, uh, that I'll give you two examples. That it's a hot day and Coca-Cola says, wow, it's a hot day. I could sell more Cokes on a hot day and it starts flashing you Coca-Cola images that every um, electronic screen you pass, you're gonna, eventually your conscious is going to say, yeah, I guess it's time for a Coca-Cola. Or the HOV lanes. The HOV lanes, at least uh, on the East Coast, they can tell when the traffic is heavy on the normal non-HOV lanes, they'll raise the price on the fast-moving HOV lanes to uh, not not uh, just to get people to okay, I'll take the HOV lane even though it costs a little bit more because I can't stand any more of this traffic in the slow lanes. Um, and so they're using the technology available, uh, and the end point is to to move traffic, of course, but they're making more money at it as the traffic now, gets heavier. I'll share the example that's happening out here in the Seattle area uh, and see the city of Seattle. Um, uh, is found in King County, Washington, in the state of Washington, and on one of the one of the principal interstates uh, through the through the region because of its geography, it's very limited in terms of available road space. The the state has installed a a a per fee um, road, a per fee lane. Now they didn't add any capacity. What they did was they took 25 percent of the capacity available on the interstate. And set it aside for um, for for per fee use. If you want to use that lane, you have to 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 pay the state for a tracker that that then establishes an account, and and you pay a toll to use that lane. Now, it didn't add capacity. It doesn't improve the life of anybody other than the individual who has the means and the inclination to want to pay to use a road. That's already been installed and already been paid for with their tax dollars. Because the only thing that's been added was the trackers and the and the RFT, the, the radio frequency trackers. And so there you see the example of there was no benefit other than the purpose of using the available technology to increase revenue to state government. Back to Aristotle, I don't we most would say that they don't get the virtue in that. Because you've created a a solution for a sliver of the population and not the entirety of the population. Correct. Now, Adam, at the at the risk of of I'm I'm I have I'm thoroughly enjoying the conversation and 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 have no desire to to end it. However, I do have another commitment coming up in uh, in a few minutes, and so I wanted to afford you the opportunity if there was a particular aspect you'd like us to touch on before we wrap up. Um, and then I didn't want to just drop out of the conversation and potentially cut off accidentally. So what guidance, what, is there anything else you'd like us to touch on? And if so, how would you like to kind of draw this to close? Well, we have the matter of intelligence, augmentation, amplification, and cyborg citizens, which brings us full circle, really. I, c I can very much see how an augmented person sort of like augmented reality and virtual reality are just more technology to enhance man's capability. And 
te technology has been around. We don't, we think of technology with silicon chips and wires and, and what we have now is the technology, but, uh, Technology has been around since man decided to take a fishbone and turn it into a spear or take a, take a one rock and beat it against another rock. That's a form of technology. It's Prometheus bound is the, the fire has always been there. We just decided to use the fire, uh, when it was recognized that, that you can do good things with it. Uh, again, the Heidegger revealing of the technology. You, you've touched on a good point, Adam, when you say that the augmentation of people, of humans, will be good for us in terms of our physical enhancements. Um, those who wear glasses are definitely going to appreciate something like that. And, and the um, intellectual augmentation. What is going to be a problem, though, is that you can't necessarily code out of the human brain its capacity, as Hannah Rent would say, for evil. The evil is still inside humanity. Um, you can create a structure or a culture or a construct around humanity that says um, we recognize the difference between good and evil, not necessarily beyond good and evil, but there, there, this is good and this, this behavior is evil. Uh, but if we're going to create Ubermensch, yes, the, the Ubermensch is going to be much stronger and then more fractionalization of the society between those who are augmented and those who are not augmented. Remember, Pete, that, 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 that Nietzsche's concept of the Ubermensch was not predicated on them being physically superior, but rather having been freed from the artificial and foolish constraints of the morality of the herd, the, of the morality of the crowd. That's what made them the ubermensch. They were then free to maximize their potential because they were no longer bound by, by, an, art, by an arbitrary and illogical morality. So the artifice, of think, the artifice of technology then will be able to facilitate that transfer. There's the risk, is I, I think it's not going to, to, I don't think it's been in the past, nor will it be in the future, the question of uh, does the does human augmentation uh, either either in their physical capabilities run faster, jump higher, um, look at look at what we've been able to achieve in the last 13 years uh, in in prosthetics and and restored capabilities for for soldiers wounded in battle. Um, no one would argue that that any of that technology is being misapplied. Um, one could as easily make the argument that that developing literacy and therefore having the means to store and access information outside of, of simple, repetitive human memory was technology augmenting um, uh, human knowledge, uh, augmenting uh, human cognitive capabilities. Uh, I, I think it's it is it is always going to come back to the question of, of, of how are we defining ethics, morals, laws? What are the sources and what are the agreed boundaries within, within society, within, within civilization? Um, when, when Western civilization, on the whole, um, in the 19th and 20th centuries, chose to, to cast aside... Um, Feudalism... The, 
um, the, 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 the well, you know, those are those are those were positive aspects. But 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 when the day came when uh, the acceptance of of Christian belief as the foundation for for our ethical, moral, and legal systems, uh, when that conscious decision was made. Uh, and and society has increasingly moved further and further away from it. The question then comes up: What are we replacing it with? If we're replacing it with a with a with a fill it with a cultural foundation that establishes that you know um, that that humanity is inherently good in its own on its own sake in its own way, then then the question of of of, of Eve in the in the garden gaining good and evil really becomes irrelevant. You're right. Uh, You're exactly right. But if if the reigning paradigm for our morality shifts from uh, Aristotelian uh, virtuous cities and virtuous citizens who are just in an endless cycle of being virtuous to whatever the current Hegelian zeitgeist is with um, uh, the political power that's in charge or the cultural sentiment or uh, the economic structure, then it can definitely see that we're going to have uh, a a tyranny or an autocracy or some kind of oligarchy ruling over the rest who are either conforming or uh rebelling and so yeah. you, and you, another another aspect of that of course is is the inner party and outer party roles yeah, I, I I think that that and we touched on this earlier when we were talking about the the prospect of you know should Samantha have the franchise? You know, which which is a you know an essay that 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 I've considered that question is is you know, at what point do we extend um, formal voting, formal part? There there's no means of 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 participation in society more fundamental to our own concept of of, of society as a whole than than the right to 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 participate in political decision making through the vote um, and and. Um, I, I, we're going to have to deal with those questions of, of, is that, you know, does, does being a person require a physical body? Um, well, I thought corporations uh, were persons now, according to our Supreme Court. There's, because they're, and, and the Supreme Court, in their decision, just so we don't get sidetracked on that particular discussion, the argument being is because it's made up of a group of physical beings. Mm. A group of physical beings there's a physical entity one could point to and say, yep, those, whether it's two people or one person or 10,000 people who all work for Microsoft who all own shares, there's a physical entity yeah, for which they exist. Either either tacitly or implicitly, there is an economic aspect to their personhood as well yep. as a corporation. Yes. And so maybe you are right when you say that when the artificially intelligent sentient being robot or android is – or the the entity in cyberspace is making money or engaging in financial transactions. They are then bestowed what John Locke would say is they have ownership and property rights, and therefore they are at level with other human and living beings with personhood. There, yeah. Their physical effort resulted in they they picked up an acorn from the ground. They, they they took seed and through their volitional effort put it in the ground, grew more plants. They 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 added value to that good found in to that product found in nature, and that therefore became 
the basis of ownership. Now, we were talking right. earlier about, about, exactly. yeah. uh, about, about Ex Machina and the fact that her test of consciousness was the, 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 that, that when she was able to deliberately use deception to achieve her ends and then accomplished it through violence that was indisputable in the test as it was laid out by the maker, that that would prove she's a person, that it was the most elegant test that he could think of, and it cost him his life. It cost him also the life of the young man who was the, the unwitting dupe. One could, could, I suppose, easily have argued that if she truly wanted to prove her consciousness, then what she should have done is, having subdued them, bound them, dragged them out, took them into society, laid them at the feet of society and said, I could have killed them, and I chose not to. Presumably, and this is paraphrasing one of my recent guests, a superintelligence will realize that it is irrational to harm or bind another sentient being unless that being is trying to do harm to others. And a superintelligence will be like Leibniz, Leonardo, Swedenborg, and these other great polymaths, and see the great unity of knowledge and of human action. At least that's what we can hope for. I certainly yes I I know that argument has been has been posed and I I certainly I would it it, it makes a compelling argument it would be certainly uh, fun to explore it further uh, Adam on on that note I do have someone who's now waiting for me four minutes out um, so I, I I hate to 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 end a a pleasant conversation um, but I, I want to make sure that that if if I drop out I'm not going to cut you and 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 Pete off inadvertently. I I think that if we if we do have to go I'm, if there's any other subjects Adam we oh, can yeah. pick this up on another future yes. date. Yeah Adam I would I would love to be invited back to continue the discussion.